All right, guys, welcome back. What's up, my brothers? We're on episode number 25 of the Playing to Win series, and I'm joined today by my uh, good friend, old-time uh, business coach, Cameron Harold. How you doing, brother? Good, Richard. Good to see you, buddy. Yeah. Um, we have not chopped it up in a long time, I and mean, we were just chatting for about 10 minutes before live. Um, you know, I was saying to him last time I talked to him at, you know, for any length was when we were down in Napa Valley at this uh, um, event a mutual friend of ours put on. But um, Cameron was real pivotal for me around 2008 and nine around my business when I hired him as a business coach. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but I would I would describe you in a certain way. And I know that you've kind of pivoted your business model to um, less coaching CEOs and more the COO like alliance where you're trying to get COOs to really um, think outside the box to free up the C CEO. Um, how would you? How would you describe yourself today to people that don't know you? Because you got to keep in mind, like most people that watch my stuff on a regular basis, you know, they're here to learn about the sexual marketplace and women. They, of course, want to chase excellence and chase less of women. So I think that you'd be awesome to really talk about the business component of that. Because like you've dealt with a lot of really, really smart guys out there. Like you've talked on just about every continent um, that I'm aware of, with the exception of Antarctica, right? Pretty well, much every. All yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Pretty much every major city. I know you've authored your own books. You've co-authored uh, some other books. I know you co-authored one with Adrian, which I did a Plane to Win series on, I think in the last 10 episodes. You guys can go back and find that one. Um, how would you introduce yourself to somebody that didn't know who you are? Well, first off, how do you know Adrian? He's another great former client that we've been friends with. How do you know Adrian? Because when you were coaching me in 2009, uh, you said to me, I'm going to connect you with Adrian because uh, he managed to get free PR on okay. what was that TV show, uh, CSI, with his yeah. DNA 11. So yeah. we chatted for a couple hours and we just became friends. I mean, he's a car guy. So anytime there's a car guy around, it's like all of a sudden click, right? Um, great yeah, but we've chatted on and off, you know, for the last 10 years or so. Yeah, great guy. All right. So how would I describe myself? I am still still a speaker, um, although it's not my core of what I do anymore. I've done paid speaking events now in 26 countries on six continents in about 700 cities. Um, I am a CEO and a COO coach. So I coach, but real companies, typically 50 to 500 employees. Uh, the largest company I've ever coached was Sprint. I coached the CEO and the COO of Sprint for 18 months. Um, and then I've also coached a monarchy in the Middle East. I own the, the family that owned the country of Qatar. So they're an absolute monarchy. They own the country. Um, so I did some work there. But typically my zone is in the 50 to 500 employee range. Three of my clients have sold for over 100 million. Um, one just raised $255 million from Warburg Pincus. I've been coaching them for seven years. So that's kind of my coaching world. I've written five books now. So I've written Double Double, Meeting Suck, Vivid Vision, I co-authored The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs with Hal Elrod, and then I also co-authored the uh, book Free PR with Adrian Solomonovich. His name is a tough one, so I just say it real fast because I never pronounce it. <laughs> I've known Adrian and his former partner, Naz, for so long. I'm just like, Solomonovich, something like that. Um, fucking he won't be offended. He's a great PR guy, especially on the digital side. And then um, about four years ago, I started up an organization called the COO Alliance, Really, because I, I used to be a COO. I was the COO for 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Took them from 14 employees to 3,100 employees in six years. And I kept going to these conferences when I was the second in command. And I didn't really fit in. You know, I'd be talking to these entrepreneurs that they'd be like, oh, we got to get all the right people on the bus. And I'm like, yeah, let's talk about interviewing. 
and they'd already moved on to marketing. I'm like, all you said was get the right people into the company. You didn't fucking talk about how. And it's like COOs want to talk about interviewing for two days. Entrepreneurs want to talk about it until the next drink. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted a, a space for them to be able to really get into the business and operations and work on the business and work on themselves without the distraction of all the entrepreneurs around. So we started up that organization for them. Every year we actually run an event with the CEO and the COO both. We bring in a marriage counselor and communication specialists and conflict management people and personality profile experts to have them work on building that better relationship. But that would be my zone that I'm in. And then I have a podcast as well called the Second in Command podcast where we only interview the COO. So everybody's interviewed the entrepreneur. I get the rest of the story. So we've had the COO of Bumble and the Cleveland Indians and Shopify. We've interviewed some really, really great second in commands. That's awesome. And like the thing that really got my attention when I met you, um, I think it was either at the Profit 50 or the Profit 100 conference. Profit, yeah. Uh, wow. Ian Portsmouth from Profit Magazine. I don't know if it's still around. Um, but they used to do these awards every year and you'd go and apply to, uh, participate as part of the conference that they bring in these top shelf speakers and Cameron was one of them. Um, but I mean, the thing that caught my attention is how you guys grew when 800 got chunk. And I think you said it was from like 6 million to 106 million over the six years. Yeah. 2 million to 106 million. Yeah. So that's, so that's hyper growth. And that's pretty much what every company that was on that profit 50 to profit hundred list was, um, was a hyper growth company. Um, I can't even remember what mine was. I think it was like around the 500% mark, but there was companies that were growing at like over 2000, 3000% like year over year. Um, a lot of them seemed to be in like the headhunting kind of recruiting space. And um, yeah, it was just, it was just wild to like be able to have an opportunity to be in that um, area because most people don't get entrepreneurs. Like, like entrepreneurs hardly get entrepreneurs, let alone the ones that are successful. They have a hard time because everybody looks at them like you're batshit crazy. I remember this one time, I think it was at Jay's first um, mastermind talks. I think you kind of opened with, all right, guys, put your hands up if you have like um, manic issues, if you think about sex a lot. It's like, you know, like you had this full list of like 20 different items. And by the end of it, everybody was still basically with their hand up and like, yeah, that's me, right? And it's like, you know, birds of a feather kind of flock together when it comes to these highly motivated, highly, like I call them weapons, like entrepreneurs that can really put a dent in the universe. Um, you know, they can really get stuff done when it comes to business, but we're all, we're all quite similar and we all kind of default to the same beliefs and thinking process when it comes to the approach with business. And you and I were talking about like the roller coaster ride that a lot of entrepreneurs go through. Can you kind of talk to that about people about w- what that experience is like? Yeah, and, and I'm I'm being cognizant because I really I really like you, respect you, and you're saying some stuff that I, I wanted to touch on. Even in addition to that, yeah, <clears throat> a few things. One is you've kind of mentioned around it a couple times about us, you know, being at these events. You know, we met at the that entrepreneur conference, the Fast Fifty from Profit Magazine, which is the Canadian version of, of Inc. Magazine. Um, and that was a, a contest that you put your name into that you ended up winning. And then you spent the time and money to go to these dinners and these conferences and, and learn and to up, upgrade your skills. Most entrepreneurs don't do that. You know, the 99, 98% of entrepreneurs have never been to any kind of a mastermind group at all. I agree. And you mentioned that we went to one that Jason Gaynard um, organized. I mean, you flew to Napa to go to that thing. Like you flew across North America, you spent money on it. I think it was probably 10 grand. To, to attend it. 
And every time, and then you're a part of the entrepreneurs organization. So we were all, both of us were a part of those three groups and that upgrades our skills. It, it, it goes back to that saying of you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Well, if you're not spending time with the right people, you get sucked down the wrong rabbit holes. And I think you're actually creating a tribe for men who actually want to better themselves, better their relationships, better their, their businesses. And if the more time they spend, not only listening to your podcast, but attending events, hopefully that you'll put on connecting with other members in any communities that you pull together. Cause I know you've got a couple of online communities for them that really, you get a 10 X return on that. You know, I've been a member of the genius network of war room. I've gone to the main Ted conference nine years in a row. Um, like all of those things upgrade my network. And then I don't spend time with the negative, grumpy, overweight, you know, people who are complaining or waiting for government to hand them anything because I'm choosing to be a part of another group. And I think that's really important. Yeah, you, I really bang on that drum as loud and hard as I can. But but there's always, you know, like a good chunk of the guys out there that are just haters that want to marinate and sit around and, and sulk and have their pity party. And it's like, man, if you're sitting around with five fat guys that are just you know, shoving garbage in their face, consuming useless media content, doing nothing with their lives, you're going to be the six. There's no two ways about it. I mean, you're never going to level up. Well, and I'll tell you, for, for any of the groups that you, and this is, maybe I'm sliding into a coaching moment and giving advice that I shouldn't, but I'm going to anyway, you know me. No, I'd love to hear it. You know, if, I always you have, if you have any of those guys, even if they're like red-pilled to the end, but they're just the negative grumpy jerks, kick them out of the group anyway. I like. It doesn't matter if they like your ideas, they also have to like who you stand for, right? They have to be the kind of people, not they don't have to look the same or act the same, but they've got to they've got to be driving forward and letting some of the negative shit go as well. Like we got to work on the positive stuff and not dwell on all the, you know, anyway. Um, Definitely. Um, you mentioned that you were a part of the war room. Are you talking about Andrew Tate's war room or is that a different one? No, it's uh, Roland Fraser, Perry, um, uh, Perry Belcher and uh, Ryan Dice, the guys that own Traffic and Conversion, yeah. have another group called War Room. It's a very high-level mastermind, 25000 a year. It's only related to marketing, digital marketing, um, all the funnels. Really, really solid, solid program. Gotcha. And I think I saw you on uh, Mike's list for Greenland this year and next year. Did you sign up for that too? I was going as one of his, um, like a mentor, an entrepreneur in residence for that. I was supposed to be there in June and bum. That was another, I, I got bumped out of about five major events I was supposed to be at this year. Yeah, I was going to say, you must have I canceled main, that they, on I was a main stage speaker at Traffic and Conversion, 5,000 people, and they canceled the conference because yeah. of COVID. This COVID um, thing's really so, thrown a wrench into it all. Oh, it's fucked. Second thing you mentioned was, was you know, CEOs are kind of crazy and, and you kind of, even skimmed a little bit over that. What's interesting is bipolar disorder, and you mentioned kind of some of those traits I talked about entrepreneurs. I read a list of 11 traits that describe entrepreneurs. And every entrepreneur, for the most part, nine out of 10 goes, yep, that's me, yep, that's me, yep, that's me. It's a nine, 10, or 11 of the 11 traits. What are those Tra traits again? Because I know I, I botched that list for you. Yeah, I can, I can read them out loud. See if you want me to read them out loud. Go ahead, yeah. Um, so, but what these traits actually are is traits that describe every entrepreneur. And when I read out the list and everyone identifies with it, then I give them the rest of the story. So here's the 11 traits and anybody listening can count on their fingers and, um, and see if you get at least over five. Are you often filled with energy? Does your mind get flooded with ideas? Are you driven? Are you restless? Are you unable to keep still? 
Are you often working on little sleep? Do you get euphoric? Are you easily irritated by minor obstacles? Do you burn out periodically? Do you act out sexually, which is like flirting or massage parlors or anything like that? Do you feel persecuted by those who do not accept your vision? So that's 11 traits. How many did you have? Oh, I got them all. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, 11, I'm 11 for 11. By the way, on the traits for attention deficit disorder, I have 17 of the 18 signs for ADD as well. Um, where we are though on those traits is those are not just traits of entrepreneurs. Those are actually the clinical diagnosed traits for bipolar disorder. So most entrepreneurs are on the spectrum for bipolar. If you said yes to nine, 10 or 11 of the traits, you'd actually be diagnosed and medicated for bipolar. Bipolar disorder has been nicknamed by the medical community as the CEO disease. So most entrepreneurs have those traits. In fact, the way that I met the CEO of Sprint, we were sitting on a plane and I diagnosed him as having um, ADD, bipolar and being on the spectrum for Tourette's because he had a nervous tick. He's like, how do you know this about me? And I said, I just know entrepreneurs better than anybody. And you are massively ADD and bipolar. And he was, he had just built a billion dollar company that he'd sold to SoftBank and was getting ready to go over and become the CEO of Sprint. And here I am telling them he's crazy, but the medical community thinks entrepreneurs are nuts. We're actually just hardwired to be very different from doctors and teachers and engineers. And one of the hardest struggles for entrepreneurs that I've recognized over the years is we're struggling with being told that we're, there's something wrong with us. We're struggling with being told we have a disease. Bipolar is, is not a disorder. It's actually a strength. The mania, that crazy energy, the starting things quickly, the fact that we get bored and delegate quickly, those are all perpetual motion machines that help us start our company and get it going. The stress and depression is simply us burning out and course correcting and working too much and feeling bad about taking time off for our business because of the guilt of talking to our employees. But that's a, but, and it's magnified for us. The stress is magnified because we can't go tell our spouse or our friends, oh, we're not taking a paycheck for three months. We're not paying ourselves. We haven't paid ourselves back for expenses. You know, here we are recruiting some, some VP to come and work for us, even, even though we're not sure how we're going to meet payroll in six days. You know, like we're really magnified amount of stress. <clears throat> so that, that craziness is, um, is, is another reason to be involved in mastermind groups and, and conferences for, for entrepreneurs and coaching even so that you are around your tribe of people that aren't going to wallow in it, but learn from it and then grow from it. Mm. Um, talk a little bit more about the entrepreneur's roller coaster ride, like the ups and downs and how they typically navigate it, because it's like you have to be a little bit crazy to run a business. I mean... You put it all on the line, you take all the risk, you pay all the taxes, you're held fully accountable for anything that goes wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, your employees can walk away from the business, but you can't. Like there's a lot of things that are working behind the scenes. A lot of people see a really successful entrepreneur and they're like, oh, that guy, you know, he just, you know, he's a bad guy because money is the root of all evil and kind of like blah, 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 like insert in the narrative that makes them feel good, that supports their belief system. But that's really not the case. I mean, there's a lot going on behind that for you to go and execute and deliver the results and be successful and be able to employ all these people and you know everything that goes along with that. Oh, the, the stress and anxiety of starting a company and as you said, putting it all on the line, spending money, signing personally against loans. You know, I don't think a lot of people really truly understand how much 
it takes to not just start a business, but to get it up and running and to even be successful. I think that old data point was that 85% of all businesses fail within the first year. And of the 15% that succeed, 85% of those fail within the first five. So you have a very, very low percent that you're even going to succeed as a business, let alone get over a million or over 10 million or over 100 million in revenue. It's extraordinarily hard to get into that zone. And then you're often hit with these things that come out of left field. So we'll speak to, to COVID as an example. And you've met my sister before. She's been running her own company for 25 years, started it from scratch. She was doing a million dollars a month in revenue. COVID hit and she had to shut her business completely oh, with yeah. zero ability to go online. So she runs co-ed intramural sports leagues for people in their 20s and 30s in seven or eight cities. She can't tell 100,000 people to play co-ed intramural volleyball from their living room. And we're going to play basketball. on Zoom, right? Right. You can't, can't play basketball over Zoom. <laughs> So she literally had to shut. And now, even though that the whole GTA and a bunch of the cities she's open are open for sports, well, the schools and the facilities that she used to run her events out of aren't allowing people to run sports there. So she's literally at the mercy. She's five months in with 65 employees and office space and overhead and full-time facilities. And like, that's a scary situation to be in, right? And so, so when you watch these entrepreneurs and now she's back open and she's at about 50% and she'll grow and she'll be good. But man, I, I've seen some people in her industry that had kept borrowing, kept acquiring, kept growing, that had no cash, no reserves that will literally be out of business. Thankfully, she was very conservative and very um, smart investor and she's going to come out of it really strong. But that's a scary situation to be in. You know, she yeah. can't go to the government for a quick paycheck. She can't get an extra loan. Nobody's going to cover all of her stuff and no one really understands. And then all of our friends that have a job, they don't really empathize, right? Or they can empathize for five minutes, but they can't empathize with you for the next 90 days that you're waking up or not going to sleep. Um, yeah, like this, this stuff that comes out of left field and hits you, usually hits you really hard. It takes the wind out of your sails. I mean, I'll share a story um, because I called you when this happened, I think you were with your kids at Disneyland or, or something like this. This was around 2010 or 11. This was after our coaching, um, you know, was done. But, um, you know, we we still chatted from time to time. And the Ontario government had, had introduced this new bill in Parliament. They called it Bill 55. And it was basically stacked with a bunch of shit, which included uh, changing the fee structure and when you could collect the fee with my business. Yep. And... I was like, holy shit, like they're going to delay the first revenue event and they're going to cut it by two thirds. This is not, this is not feasible. And I remember I fucking called you and you were like, okay, man, I can't talk very long because I'm with the kids at Disneyland, but you've got to like, you got to dig deep and pivot on this. We talked very, very brief briefly, but I remember just getting off the phone with you. I closed the blinds in my office and I just sat there and I put my, my, my uh, face in my hands and I just started bawling. I was like, I'm fucked right? Like I had yeah. 23 employees. Um, there was no way that we were going to survive it based on the uh, language introduced in the legislation, tried to fight it for two years with lobbyists that didn't really go anywhere. Um, we did manage to pivot though. We like, like we found a way to pivot, thankfully, um, with a lot of deep work, but, um, yeah, it's still running. My, my brother runs the business, you know, for the most part, I've pretty much taken the exit out of it and I mostly do this now, but there's always something that comes out of left field and that business has been running from 2003 ish. So almost, you know, 17 years now. Well, and even, it if happens. even if there's nothing that comes out of left field, 
you have employees that quit, you have theft, you have insurance um, issues, you, there's lawsuits, there's, um, you know, marketing gets expensive or you make marketing mistakes. You know, like it's just, it's just not easy, right? And then, you, and then if you're a caring person, an empathetic person, you care, I care about my employees' lives. Like when we were building 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we ranked as the number two company to work for in the entire country, right? 1.46 million companies in Canada, we ranked number two to work for. It's because we were a very caring, empathetic culture Man, I had no life. I was I was doing my work during the day, caring for employees, doing extra work at night, trying to catch up. And the growth was so quick that just the stress of even being successful is tough. You know, people like we did we did six consecutive years of one hundred percent revenue growth over a three year period. We had nineteen thousand six hundred percent growth. It was ridiculously fast. Mm. So you when you when you look at and people are like oh that must have been so easy. Fuck no, man. Look. <laughs> It's really hard when you got people coming in so fast. You don't even know what business area they work in, let alone what their name is. Yeah. Um, do you get uh, critics on your work, Cameron? Oh, of course. What yeah, do of course. Criticize you on? Um, okay, so let me go through the. I'll go through the different areas of my business. So, I don't think I've really had any areas of, of criticism on any of my books. I saw one recently, and it was like. Nothing really new in here, but I was talking about meetings. So good. I mean, if you've read about how to run meetings, then yeah, like a meeting is a meeting, but most people have never been trained. But most of my books, I'd say I get pretty great results or responses from. My speaking events, I'm told that I swear too much, I talk too quickly, um, and that I'm, I tell sexual jokes from the stage or sexual innuendos, which is true. Um, <laughs> I can explain all of them. They're all deep-seated insecurities, I'm sure. Um, my coaching, the model has changed enough with my coaching is I'm too distracted and, you know, I end up like in the middle of talking to somebody, I'm checking email or making some social media posts cause I come up with some idea. So my ADD is really, really hard to keep tight. Uh, so it's way better for me if I'm coaching over video or in person. Um, you're always going to get critics though. So how do you normally deal with them? Well, and then the other, the other one is that people, people, it's not so much a criticism, but they say, why aren't you running a company anymore? I'm like, well, well, I am, I've actually got six employees, but, um, they're like, why aren't you building a bigger brand? It's cause I don't want to, like I've done it three times. I don't have a big need after doing college pro painters and then Boyd auto body and Gerber auto collision. And then one Thunder got junk. The last thing I need is to do another company. I don't need, I, I've had that itch scratched. Right. Yeah. So how do I, I do it? Um, I, I want to talk about, sorry. Yeah, you, you, I'm wondering on how I deal with criticism. I learned this lesson from a, a good friend of mine, Tim Ferriss. Tim, Tim and I have known each other for 12 or 13 years. He stayed at my home in Vancouver. We hung out. I hung out with his brother in Vancouver. And um, when my TED, I did a TEDx talk about 10 or 11 years ago about raising kids as entrepreneurs. It's a great talk. Thank you. Tim, um, Tim called me about it and he was saying, by the way, don't read any of the negative comments on your Ted talk because it's on the main Ted website. <clears throat> he said, don't read any of the negative comments. Anyone who writes comments is crazy. And he said, however, don't read any of the positive comments because those people are crazy too. And yeah. that was, that was a really empowering thing to recognize because I used to be like, oh, look how well they really love me. They love me. And then it's like, oh, they hate me. And then I'm a loser and I'm terrible. So now that I don't read any of the comments seriously, mm -hmm. I, I don't take the praise any seriously, any more seriously than the than the constructive criticism. Second, yeah, actually, 
And the, so the last thing is the second thing is I always try to look for some truth in any of the criticism because there usually is some element of of truth and I'll, I'll show you what i mean by that what color you're looking at this what color is this book that i'm showing you right now the paper is white are you talking about the right. yeah right and the other side is, is if i had a card one side was white one side is orange yeah. so you, you see white i see orange right mm. there's really two sides to the story and i've tried really hard when i get criticism to see some truth in that that i can grow from Mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't sit and stew on it or, or get upset about it anymore. Yeah. I got to the point where, um, I think I heard Joe Rogan talk about it once cause I really like his interview style. And it was just like, he was just like, you know, you can't read comments. Like you just can't go there cause it's such a waste of your time. And really the opinions of the, of these people shouldn't matter. And it, and it's one of the reasons why I run my live show with members only chat in that area. Cause I don't really uh, particularly care too much about the opinions of, of most people because they just um, they don't understand like they haven't walked a mile in your shoes right and it's usually these critics flicking boogers from the cheap seats up at the 500 level and they've never actually walked anywhere close to a mile in what you're doing um, I want to pivot a little bit here and throw this up on the screen and talk about company culture because this is one of the things that um, you were really well known for with 1-800-GOT-JUNK so this is <laughs> I remember this yeah, I was, yeah, so I was thinking about this this morning. Go ahead. I, I'll yeah, tell you. So these are some photographs from my office. Um, this was after I had met you and we did some coaching on improving uh, company culture. So these are actual shots of our office space around 2009 ish, I would think. Um, and I stole this from your sister's office space, actually, uh, where, where we put up like these BHAGs, like these big, hairy, audacious goals, you know, up on the wall. And then we started slapping these done stickers when we started to get them done. But um, you know, people in the office came up with these great ideas about, you know, what, what it is we'd like to hit. And, you know, we, we threw them up there and we said, all right, you know, if this is your idea, then let's make sure that we hold you accountable to getting them done. Um, you know, we switched over from shitty chairs to these Herman Miller chairs, which cost us like a hundred times more. Um, put these things up all over the office, you know, just as like constant reminders. We cleaned up the office space and kind of jazzed it up with, um, you know, furniture that the guys picked up. This over here was our um, painted picture. Mm. Um, I want to talk about that as well after we talk about culture. You know, we threw around these these barbecues and, and did lunches a lot. We did a lot of, like, these are all canvas prints that we got from... Uh, from Adrian's company. Canvas from Adrian's box. company. You know, those are all photographs that uh, the staff uh, submitted that they want to decorate, you know, the space with. Um, you know, we even started writing shit up on the walls with that, markers. That's what I was laughing about. I was thinking, I love that when you let your employees just handwrite shit up on the walls. I was like, at first I thought it was weird. And then I've, I've seen the photos. So I had some photos for years after. I'm like, it was really fucking cool because it was really raw and it was real. And it wasn't like overproduced. Yeah. And that was the wall that I looked at across from my desk in my office, um, you know, with my ideas. Um, a lot of these were constant reminders of things that I was... Um, you know, I gave the staff some money to put a gym in the back of the office because we had this um, warehouse space back there. Mm. Um, I think there's a picture of you and me in here somewhere. This is like kind of like a, a Jersey day, these guys. Yeah, there you are. There you are. There's a younger wow. version of you and me without a beard. Oh, you have to send me that. That's amazing. Yeah, that's, uh, that's actually 2011. I think you visited I, when yeah, we you were speaking. Yeah, I think you were in Toronto for an EO event that time. Yeah. But all of this shit was like, we just went batshit crazy. Like, we even had a dog in the office. <laughs> That's awesome. We're director of greetings. 
Yeah. Dogs were great. But um, talk about the importance of uh, culture when it comes to office. And I'll be honest with you, I think I went too far. I think I went a little bit too far with it, but I want to hear what your opinion is. So I, I believe that culture um, really starts not with the physical space and not with perks, but culture starts with an alignment with vision. So you talked about your painted picture, what I now call a vivid vision. Uh, culture comes from an alignment and a deep-seated belief and, and living of core values. It comes with an alignment for your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal, and then your core purpose, that kind of the why that Simon Sinek kind of popularized. So I think if I think of every business like a jigsaw puzzle, the four corners of the jigsaw puzzle are vivid vision, core purpose, core values, and the BHAG. And then culture starts with all of the people systems, right? Recruiting the right people, interviewing and onboarding the right people, leadership and growth and training of all of your people. It's one of the key things that Gen Y wants is growth in their roles. Um, and then aligning them with, with having the right meeting rhythms and coaching and communication protocols. That's where culture starts. Culture kind of gets wrapped up in the, the Tiffany blue box is your office environment and giving them a nice space to work in and giving them the perks and the, you know, the free massages and the free lunches and that kind of stuff. But I think I think the media has done us a disservice with thinking that culture is the physical space. You know, much like a family, I could give my kids the best home and a great environment and, you know, BMW when they're 16 and all that stuff. And I'd have a bunch of spoiled kids. So it's not the perks and the beautiful home they live in. But if they have all the right core values and they're good kids and they're keeping their shit together and they're working hard and they're working as a family, they might get those things because I can afford it. But that's not where that's not what makes the happy family. It's not what makes a happy company. So then once you're at that stage where wrapping it all up in the blue box and you give them the office environment, I don't think too far is far enough yet. I think I think you probably were were getting to the point of even getting to, uh, to you were probably at, at really good mm-hmm. where where you get to great is, you know, no, no doors in the office, just glass doors, no walls, just glass walls at worst. Um, where everybody sits in the same desk as everybody else, no private offices, where all the blank spaces of the walls speak. And, and it becomes like a cult. This is one of the things I learned from the founder of College Pro Painters, which ended up being the largest house painting company in the world. To build an amazing business, it has to be a little bit more than a business and a little bit less than a religion. It has to be in that zone of a cult. So to, to be in that zone of a cult, people have to see it and feel it everywhere they go. They've got to feel the core values, be reminded of the core values, be reminded of your customers, be reminded of each other. So the walls, when they speak to that, I think can be really, really powerful. Um, the physical space that you give people like the gym, but it, but with the gym, you want to be you want to be one by one firing all the negative, grumpy, overweight smokers and one by one hiring people who are like, fuck yeah, I want to live in that gym, mm-hmm. right? We want to hire people that are are driving the business forward for us. And they appreciate the culture, but they don't take it as a, a right. The um, painted picture, which you rename the, vid, the vivid vision. Um, when <laughs> I wrote the one for my company, um, I spent a good deal of time just on that, on that two-page document. And then we printed it up on a large piece of um, like commercial plastic, like just like nicely finished. And we put it in the reception area, but it, it, 
it spoke to the vision of the company. It, it talked about everything. It was public. It was with the employees. We had it posted to our website. People could see it when they would come in to see what we were all about and where we were going. Um, this is something that I think guys can use in their own personal lives to design like a life for themselves. Oh, yeah. I think you wrote a book on this, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Oh, I, and I've actually covered the Vivid Vision concept now in three books. So it's covered in Double Double as chapter one. It's covered in the Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs. Um, and then I also wrote a book called Vivid Vision, which describes how to write a vivid vision for your business, for yourself, and for a family. Mm -hmm. And it's really how to craft. And I, and I did a TEDx talk that's gone really viral as well um, on, on basically your vision statement sucks. And it really shows people how, unless you're living with intention, unless you're living with, with a goal or driving towards something, you can kind of end up anywhere. So as a life, as a person, let's say that's a guy who wants to have a better life, what what is your what do your relationships look like in three years? What's your fitness level look like in three years? What do your hobbies look looking like in three years? What are you doing to take care of your your mental state? Um, you know, what are you doing in your sexual relationships? What are you like what are you doing with family? And really describing how you see yourself acting and being and then figuring out how do I make every sentence come true, right? So my, I have a personal vivid vision. I can share it with you if you want to share it with our listeners. But my personal vivid vision talks about, you know, time with my kids every quarter that I do one-on-one -on -one time with my kids and I keep my phone put away. And how once a year I do a very meaningful trip with my kids and I keep my phone put away and we try to do global travel or what I'm doing for myself and my fitness levels. And it, it nags me. The fact that I have this vivid vision for myself and I share it with people kind of nags at me to keep focusing on it. And it calls me on my bullshit or my friends call me on my bullshit. So I had a, a business associate, a guy from the entrepreneurs organization who's coming into Vancouver. And he said, Hey, I read your vivid vision. It says that you love to play tennis or go hiking instead of going for drinks with people. Do you want to go for a hike? And I was like, yeah, actually like, holy shit. That's amazing. Like it even sounded way more better, way, way more exciting than just going for a drink with another person. Right. Mm -hmm. He and I went and did like a three hour hike together and turns out now we've become really great friends mm. right? because I was living, I was more true to my vision, but the fact that I was willing to share it with strangers has helped me make it come true. Yeah. Um, so guys, you can grab that book off Amazon. Um, and it's written from the perspective of, you know, for an entrepreneur with a business, but you can apply it to your own personal life. I know a lot of you guys don't run businesses and you're, and you're not particularly interested in that, but if you want to level up, most guys sleepwalk through life, you know, most, most guys will like just complicate the crap out of their lives and then justify why they do it. Like Philip McKernan says, you know, that's where I got that line from. But, um, yeah, some, some intentional planning makes a big difference when it comes to living a more fulfilled, productive, intentional, um, life. It's, it's just, it's just a game changer. A lot of people would, um, you know, get encouraged to do these, uh, what do they call them? Like these collages where you'd cut out pictures of, yeah, like, vision, oh, I want the fast car and vision you know, boards. Vision boards. Yeah. yeah. yeah the, idea with, the idea with the vision board was actually popularized by a guy who I'm now close friends with. Funny story, but this in the movie The Secret, there was a guy, John Asaroff, who was the largest real estate um, broker or agent for Remax. He had like 13,000 real estate agents coming up into his empire. And uh, he popularized the concept of the vision board. And then the day that I was leaving 1-800-GOT-JUNK 13 years ago, Brian sent me a note and said, oh, by the way, on Thursday this week, John Asheroff from The Secret's coming in. And we'd showed all of our franchisees the movie The Secret. We showed all of our employees the movie The Secret. 
we believed in quantum physics and how to actually leverage that. So I go in and meet this, meet this guy. And after his little speaking event, I walked up to him and said, Hey, John, I'm Cameron. I'm going to be going for lunch with you later. And he goes, Cameron. And he pulls out a piece of paper out of his pocket. It was a, like a triangle shaped piece of paper that he ripped off the corner of an envelope, it had my name on it, my phone number. And he goes, I'm not sure why I was supposed to meet you, but Justin Abernathy from Washington, DC told me to look you up when I'm in Vancouver. I'm like, mm. all right, it's pretty fucking random. Um, the vision boards ideas are a really popular way for one person to take their ideas and put some, some things in front of them that the picture says a thousand words. But when you do a vision board for your company, it's too confusing because too many people can misinterpret the picture, right? If I was showing you a picture of, as an example, my, where I'm sitting right now, you know, you might see the room and go, oh, he's into guitar. I'm like, yeah, not really. I, I wanted to be, but one of my kids is, right? So really what I was showing you was the three pieces of art that I got in the, the Netherlands because I love those pieces of art that I've got. But you don't know what I'm seeing in that picture. So a vision board is a great tool for one person to make their vivid vision come to life. But if you're going to share your vision with somebody else, the vivid vision is a way better tool. What do you think most entrepreneurs get wrong? Focus is the big one. I think most entrepreneurs are in their head, have got an idea of where they're going, but they get distracted by the big shiny objects and by the opportunities. And then their employees don't know where they're going. If the employees can't read your mind, then you have a whole bunch of people that are getting whiplash from all your random ideas. But if your vivid vision is very clear, the entrepreneur can be that very ADD squirrel kind of person because all the employees are all driving toward the vivid vision anyway. The entrepreneurial kind of distraction doesn't hurt them. But the lack of focus and the lack of sharing vision, I think, are the two big things. Um, oh, here I got. Um, OK, so I got your vivid vision here in the private chat. So I'm going to just drop that in the public so you guys can take a look at. You're OK with me sharing this? Yeah, and I'll also share with you the um, chapter 12 on the highs and lows of seat or the uh, the roller coaster. Um, you can share that if you want to as well. Okay, so there, so there's a Dropbox links for the Vivid Vision, and there's a chapter that Cameron just mentioned, which I am also dropping in chat as well right now. Um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk um, talk about some of the stuff that I do now because um, I'm kind of I'm kind of like you where I've arrived at the point where I want to run a company of one. I don't want employees. I don't want to move physical products. You know. I want to be agile. I want to make sure that it's 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 as anti fragile as as uh, possible. Um, so this is what I'm doing. I mean, like you've seen me broadcast about this. We were talking offline before we went live, and you said that you had some concerns about what I was talking about because it's because um, it's a bit of a touchy area. What do you think about all these all these notions around helping guys understand the sexual marketplace better? Because I think women inherently get it, and they're held to a different set of rules and standards generally, but for guys, it's a lot more difficult. Like what's your view been, been on this? Cause I mean, you've lived your own life as your own man. You've been through the divorce machine a couple of times. What do you think about it all? Yeah. And, and when I said that I had some concerns about it, when I first saw you tweeting about this about two years ago, is from what I can recall about two years ago, I had some concerns for you getting whiplash from it, but I loved what you were saying because it was true. So I didn't have concerns with the truth of it. I was just more, oh my God, you're going to get shit for this. Mm -hmm. But as you kept saying it, I also was like, keep saying it. Please keep saying it because somebody needs to say this shit. 
And the reality is there's so much of this that we've all known to be true, or many of us have known to be true, maybe have our eyes open to it, but there's no narrative for it. There's no space for it. And, and unfortunately being a, we're both white males privileged from North America, you know, in the high net worth because we've earned it. it nobody's going to listen to us unless we make our voice heard, right? We're going to get smashed back down, but your comments need to be heard and they need to be shared. Um, you know, and, and it's very hard to say, like, I've, I've heard people in, over the last number of years saying, you know, happy wife, happy life. And I'm like, no, bullshit. But I find it very hard to actually say bullshit. You know, I tried that path. I tried keeping my wife very happy and spending right to the end with, you know, horses and paying credit cards and buying the big home. And happy wife doesn't necessarily mean happy life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of um, beliefs that guys end up having crushed. Um, like, for the most part, stuff that brings people to my content, like at this stage, I've got over 41 million views on the YouTube channel with 800 videos. There's some private stuff behind that um, that's more dense, you know, behind the paywall, and it's 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 not as watered down, but most of it's public. Um, a lot of people come to it because of trauma. It's like, I screwed up. I I can't focus. I can't sleep. I can't I can't run my business. I can, you know I can barely get anything done at work. I haven't seen my kids in, in months. What the hell's going on? And they go scrambling, looking for answers. And most people use YouTube to, how do I get my garage door opener to close properly? It's not working. And they'll go and you know follow like a tutorial. But every once in a while, they'll come across something that I've talked about. Um, and thankfully, the algorithms still work reasonably well for guys like me. And I've kind of cr like been constantly working on, on, on cracking that. But it does get the reach. And I like that it gets the reach. I just wish that, it was it was accepted more widely, but I know that it's never going to be. It's, it's, it's well, just I don't know that it's not ever going to be, and and here's why. You know, if we were to go back a hundred years, was it ever going to be acceptable for women to have a vote? A hundred years ago, we would have said no way. You know, was it ever going to be acceptable for blacks to go through the same door and share a water fountain? We would have said no way. And we've got a long way to go with racism and with with. I think we're past the point with equality, but. Um, I think you can look back at a lot of situations and think that, oh, we could have never changed. I think there is going to be some narrative for this. And I'll give you an example of, of one very public moment that blew me away on the male narrative finally being heard in an interesting way. I've gone to the main TED conference for nine years. So this is the main stage, five day, you know, 120 of the main TED talks in, in five days. It's Bill Gates is in the audience. And you know, Sir, I have a picture of Sergey Brin and I sitting in a ball pit together watching videos. Um, you're, you're sitting in the audience with 1,800 of the most influential people in the world. They, TED also runs two other main events. They have TED Global and they have TED Women. And the TED Women event is 800 women and about 50 men who are invited to attend. I was one of the men who was invited to attend TED Women. I've been twice. So this was about four years ago. And I was watching a talk and a woman came out to tell her 18 minute talk. And she was talking about how 20 years ago, her best friend, who was a guy, they'd been drinking. They went back to her room. They started making out, fooling around. She kept saying no, he pursued. And she was raped by or date raped by her best friend. And she told her story of the trauma and the pain and the struggle for these nine, you know, 20 years of dealing with it. And at the nine minute mark of an 18 minute talk, she stopped. And she said, but there's another side to this story. And this guy walked out on stage and said, my name is Dave or Ken or whatever his name was. I was her best friend. 
And for the last 20 years, here's what I've gone through knowing that I went too far with my best friend and knowing that why in my head it happened because of alcohol or whatever. But there's never been a narrative for me to share that. And because she and I have connected over the years and become friends again because of this, we're allowing it to share it with you. I'm in the audience fucking sobbing, like completely tears pouring down my face. Because I have definitely had times when I'd been drinking where I pushed too far. And it wasn't, in my mind, it certainly wasn't rape. And in fact, I even called one of the girls from university. I'm like, did I push too far? And she's like, dude, fuck no. We were drunk. We were fooling around. You were fine. I liked it. We're good. Like, I was scared. You were scared. We're 22 years old. But there's no narrative for that. And I think, and, and the whole audience of 750 women, I would say 700 of the women were very moved and very touched by hearing the female narrative on date rape. 50 women were, were never going to be happy with hearing that anyway because of their own pain or whatever they're struggling with. But I think your stuff is going to have a space. I think you're going to find that there is more and more acceptability for it to the point that your videos are not being pulled. Your videos are not being flagged. Your videos are not being... Um, you know called hate so there is there is truth we just don't have that narrative for it yet but i think it's coming i'll share a couple of um examples so i i put out a tweet once um along the lines of um i think the title was something like six things women need to do to keep a man don't be a single mom don't have debt uh compliment his life don't be the focus um, don't nag him, stay fit and beautiful and feminine. And the internet lost its shit. <laughs> like I'm not talking about just one or two people, but it lost its shit. There was probably about two dozen articles written about that, uh, one tweet around the world, like not just in North America, Australia, New Zealand, Eastern Europe, even Russia. Um, you know, I had to hit the Google translate button. Um, I posted the same one on Facebook and I had the outrage mob uh, come at me, like come right at the jugular. So what they do is they take it and then they post it in a private Facebook group. All of the Karens get together, they marinate on it, they get upset and then they come back in and they will comment and then they'll all report it. And I actually had to take down my Facebook page um, because there was a point where I'm like, okay, I use Facebook for some stuff that I don't want to have it banned on. So I'm like, I'm just going to take down the page. It's not worth it. Mm -hmm. um, but I haven't seen, like, I'll see that level of acceptance when I see TEDx women invite a guy like me or Rolo Tomasi to have a conversation and a willing audience to want to hear about ownership and accountability. Well, remember, I'm saying it's going to happen. I'm not saying it's going to happen like in the next two years. But, I think it's... But, but I think it's happening. I think it's starting to become not accepted, but that people are talking about it more. I have another former yeah. client. Here's how close it is to me. I have a former client of mine that I used to coach. He's the CEO of a very big company in Toronto. I'm not going to give his name because I don't know how public he is with the whole Red Bill stuff. But he is like hardcore right there with you on this stuff. And I never would have seen it from him. Right. Mm -hmm. But he was telling me about the same books and the similar articles of what you're talking about. I think there's more of a movement towards balance or this narrative being shared than we imagine, much like, you know, the blacks have been fighting for something since the 50s and 60s. My mm -hmm. dad went to a high school in Toronto, St. Mike's, a private boys school. Blacks weren't allowed there. And he, he was like, how would you allow blacks to go there? Like, blah, blah, blah. And 
And he, he was going, the Brunswick house in Toronto that I used to go to all the time had a door for colored people, like on the side of the building, women and colored. Like mm -hmm. it, that sign was up there in the 90s when I was going. They didn't use it for that, but the sign stayed. We're not so far from having to change that. I don't think we're so far from having to swing back because too many men are pissed off and we're realizing we have a voice. Like as an example, my first marriage, my ex-wife will never ever have to work, ever. That's completely wrong. I don't mind paying spousal support and child support to a point, but when I was paying, I was paying $16,000 a month in child support a year ago because it's indexed against my income. That is a fuck ton of money and she never has to go to work. There's a, there's a balance issue there where I have to work my head off just to keep paying and the more that I make, the more that I have to give and you have an ex who gets to just, you know, hang out, not do anything, mm. not work, doesn't like that where there's too many men that are pissed off about that now mm. and we have social media to share it. So here's the other thing. A lot of these narratives couldn't be shared prior to 13 years ago, right? We only had books and the mass media. But Facebook only started 13 and a half years ago. I had the first Facebook account that got junk. So the fact that we have even a place for you to share YouTube is less than 13 years old. You know, we didn't have places to share the everyday person's narrative. So we were filtered by the mass media or the publishing world. I think we're going to see change around this more and more because we can we can stand up and say what we feel. What do you think about the deplatforming of a lot of voices on Silicon Valley platforms like YouTube, Facebook, Twitter? I'm, I understand it. Um, and I've, I've even had talks with, you know, the woman who broke the whole Cambridge Analytica story. I've sat and talked to her about what happened with Cambridge Analytica. And I understand the filter bubbles that happen with the media and, and how you can create an account and publish a story, even though it's not true. It's so like I could, I could create a news site tomorrow and call it, you know, the, uh, the North American, um, press daily, fuck whatever. Right. And we, we, mm -hmm. we create a website for that. And then we publish a story and then we put that story on a Facebook page and then I buy traffic towards that story. The story is it's wrong. Like I just created it. It's not, it's not true at all. And it's on a platform that looks real, but it's not real. The fact that I can then push that story out to millions of people that are influenceable you know, like the, 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 the middle class, the ones who buy the National Enquirer, like lists that you can acquire and push that content in front of them. I think that's dangerous. So I think it's okay for these social platforms to, to protect against something like that. I think, unfortunately, there's a pendulum where they can go a little bit maybe too far. Mm -hmm. And I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about the freedom of speech and the freedom of the press. But I also think that there's a way when they know that their platform is being used to spread complete lies that it is their platform to police it. Yeah. Do you think that um, like these platforms should be almost like public utilities where they don't have the option to deplatform anybody? It's, it's, you know, this is a space where you can broadcast yourself. Well, I would, I would say yes, except because you can purchase advertising to boost that you're not really just saying it, you know? So as an example, I could post a, 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 and I know a very, very famous TED speaker, an extraordinarily famous one, whose TED, whose, whose original TED talk went extraordinarily viral. And it's not because people noticed it. It's because his marketing team purchased traffic and drove people to the video. And the more thousands and thousands and tens and hundreds and millions of people they drove to it, which didn't cost very much 10 years ago, 
got his TED talk to boost so quickly that it was becoming the most watched and then momentum took over. Mm -hmm. That's okay because he was telling the truth. But let's say as an example, I decide to share share something that's not true to incite a problem with an election or a problem with us with a local government or a problem with social mores and it's not true. I think it's not really a social, I forget what you call it, like a utility. If they if we we're just posting it and then if people saw it, it went, but that's not the way the model works. Yeah, it's difficult to manage that. I mean, I've seen, um, you know, I can use two examples right off the top of my head that I can think of that aren't, that are perfect to kind of illustrate this, but there's um, this guy, Stefan Molyneux, who's a Canadian guy, and I don't particularly like his content or support it, but, um, you know, he's he's done, I think, thousands and thousands of videos on his channel, and he just got deplatformed one day with no strikes, doesn't swear. Um, he just talks about some things that um, are quite often fact-based, you know, if I'm being honest from what I've seen, but, you know, he was gone. And then there was another guy, um, Roosh, who was more of like a hardcore pickup artist from back in the day. Like, he wrote books like Bang Iceland, Bang England, Bang Latvia. Like, he would just travel around and just be a pickup artist and then write a book about banging over there. Um, and then he kind of pivoted one day because he talked about, you know, well, I put out content for whatever it was, 10, 15 years about fornicating is a word that he used. And then I pivoted one day because I became an Orthodox Christian and <laughs> he decided to talk about his, you know, Christian values publicly. And he got deplatformed because of that, um, because he was talking about his, uh, uh, religious beliefs around uh, homosexuality and stuff like that, right? Yeah, so I don't think that those should, people should be deplatformed for our opinions. I think if you're misusing a platform, the platform, there has to be some gray zone there as well. Yeah, it's, it's difficult it's to manage that though. But I mean, yeah. it, it for me, like I look at it like I'm building my entire business on somebody else's land and they can just pull the rug out for me at any given time. So you have to be particularly careful about the sorts of conversations that you have. And if you want to talk about ideas, you kind of need to water them down and leave well, the deeper concepts, you know, behind the paywall for community members. Or, or you listen to your grandmother. My grandmother always said that you don't put all your eggs in one basket. So, so you don't build your platform just on YouTube. You also build it on Facebook. You build it on Instagram. You build it on Twitter. You build yeah. it on a private community. You, you build it on paid lists. Like I think if, cause you're now getting to the stage that it, YouTube could shut down tomorrow morning. And no. by the way, if you're building your business only around YouTube and it did shut down, you're fucked. Like you may as well hedge your bets anyway, just in case, right? Or if they started charging or if, you know. Yeah, um, it is still a, a good place to get discovered. It's um, amazing, <laughs> spectacular. I, and I love, your, I love your videos. I was watching a bunch last week. Yeah, which one have you seen that um, kind of gave you like a big aha moment? I'm well, I'm I'm in a, a, a unique stage right now where I've been divorced twice. I'm dating a girl now for, we're at like the two and a half year mark. Um, she's getting ready to go traveling. I'm, you know, wanting to go and live globally. I'm talking more about wanting to be in an open relationship-ish, but not entirely sure what that is. So I'm listening to things around, you know, relationships and sexuality and, and dating other girls, but then also trying to think about, is that really what I want? So just kind of playing around those 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 borders or discussions or boundaries. Yeah, that seems to be a popular conversation piece, especially for entrepreneurs. Like I know Aubrey Marcus has been quite public about having an open marriage and yeah. the stuff tied around that. But then he recently did an interview with it's Brian Rose on London Rule, Real where he was talking about 
I just couldn't live with knowing some other guy was, I mean, I'm going to water this down, but basically gorilla banging the crap out of my wife yeah. while I'm out on a, a trip or something like that. So he switched yeah. to monogamy. So monogamy. why do you think that, like, um, why do you think that idea of, um, open relationships is so popular with entrepreneurs. I mean, like, I mean, entrepreneurs like to hack everything, you know, yeah. they like to biohack this and hack relationships, you know, sort of thing. What's your thought on that? So I think some of it is because we're becoming more open with discussing sexuality that we're actually talking about different forms of sexuality or different kinks or different relationships again, more than we used to because we have social media it's being shared again, even more. So we're being exposed to what we never got exposed to because we had to go to the library to buy a book on something we didn't even know about. And we certainly didn't talk about it over beer and the mass media wasn't reporting. So social media has given rise to things like different types of relationships, different kinks, different um, forms of, of, of partnerships, et cetera, as it's given rise to the, the popularity of psychedelics. I mean, 15 years ago, no entrepreneur was going to talk to another entrepreneur about doing drugs unless we tripped over the issue. And now it's like, fuck yeah, I'll go to Burning Man and do DMT with you, or I'll go to Peru and do, you know, ayahuasca, or I'll go and do mushrooms in the forest. Like, it's becoming a very normal thing. So I think I think some of it is that. Um, I know Aubrey. We've shared the stage together. We've talked. I've talked, spoken with his his ex now, his ex wife about it. I've spoken to so many different individuals over the years about open relationships, polyamorous relationships, polygamous relationships that I'm more intrigued by it, but I'm also very similar to Aubrey. Um, I've talked to Neil Strauss who wrote The Game and The Truth and you know, Neil went and played in every single possible realm only to come back to his girlfriend, get married, have a kid, and then now he's divorced. Mm -hmm. I think what it's pointing to is relationships are tough. Um, sexuality is tough and confusing and exciting. Um, communication is tough and, and, and so I, I'm playing with it to just understand as well. Like I have these human needs where I want to be able to have other partners, but then I want to be able to have a trusting, good relationship with my partner. And she'll say, well, yeah, go play with an escort or yeah, go, go to a massage place or go get another, you know, have sex with some girl that you need at a conference. But then I'm kind of going like, does she really mean that? And then, then I feel worried that I should do it. And then it's like, well, do I really want, then I'm like, do I really want to do that? Or do, what, like, what do I prefer? So I think it's just dancing around those discussions that maybe we've had in our heads or lied about over the years that now we're more prepared to, to explore. A lot of the stuff that women tell guys to do around relationships, um, boil down to competency tests, also known as shit testing you yeah, um, to see if you'll actually do it. I mean, there might be some, some truth behind it. I mean, another truth that the red pill really brings when you start to see it is that women would prefer to share a high value alpha rather than to be strapped down with a, with a faithful loser. I heard you um, say that, that actually, that actually resonated as accurate to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as long as you, you are seen in her eyes as her best option. Um, I mean, she's not going to be fond of it, but she'll tolerate it. Well, I think where so I think where, where my girlfriend is right now is that she is probably very okay with if I was at a conference, if I was at an event and I happened to meet somebody and the energy was there and we ended up having sex, great, do it. Just don't tell me. I think that's kind of the room she wants to be in. Mm -hmm. Where I want to be though is more, I don't actually want to lie to her. I would, I would actually rather have, like if she says, where were you for the last four hours? Not to go, I was sitting with guys in a bar and make up some stupid story. 
So then it's like, well, is it worth it? Is it worth it to not tell her the truth because she doesn't really want to know the truth? And I really don't think she's testing on that one. I think it's more, it is just more as when I'm thinking, look, she's going to go travel around the world for three years, even though she doesn't have the same level of sexual need that I have, mine's super high. Um, I think, fuck, she might meet somebody and end up wanting to have sex. Like, well, she had sex with people before me. Is it going to really kill me? Now, I wouldn't want her to have a partner in addition to me forever. So that's kind of where we are with our thinking of it is where Aubrey and his wife had like girlfriends and boyfriends. Like they they had partners that they would see every Tuesday and Thursday for a year. That's not what I want in my relationship. I, I, I really want to have a primary partner who I get to hang with and cuddle with and make dinners with and have sex with. But then if that energy strikes itself as right, I'd rather be able to tell the truth than to, to lie. See, the, 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 the truth about those conversations it really boils down to the societal conditioning that we get hammered into ourselves our entire lives through the female primary social order. And the truth is women don't see women want truth, but they but they don't want full disclosure. Yeah, right? there's there's almost this hamster that loves to be caffeinated in her head, you know, running on the wheel like she has to have some competition anxiety for you, because if she feels like other women don't desire you and other men don't want to be like you, then your value starts to go down. Like we talk about this process of betatization through a thousand concessions, which most guys go through in a marriage at some point, because it just ends up being, yes, honey, yes, yes, yes. And they just stamp everything. Yes, 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 yes. And at some point she's like, screw this guy, you know? And it's like, you know, they have a conversation about, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. And I'm going to take the kids and go to my mom's house sort of thing. And it kind of spirals from there. But yeah, there's a lot of unknowns that kind of sit in a lot of guys' blind spots that I just find fascinating, especially from the perspective of being an entrepreneur and working with entrepreneurs. And I do coach a lot of entrepreneurs around this subject. And that's te that, that tends to be what I focus on. But the dynamics and the beliefs that a lot of guys have that are that are very successful entrepreneurs that are that are literally weapons in their business life, but also subscribe to the you know happy wife happy life notion, or mm. you know they hear something cool like oh polyamory, so I can go bang other people and everything will be fine. But then they realize when their wife is getting you know smashed by an NBA basketball player, they're like, doesn't oh, feel so good. No. Yeah. But I, and I know a lot of couples who have tried polyamory, tried poly, or poly, um, poly relationships, have tried open relationships. Most of them have failed. Um, most of them have blown up. And I think there is that it's either, okay, we have to bring back the gray zone a little bit, or maybe it's not really that worth it. And, mm. um, there's, um, there's a really good book I think you'd like. It's called Alpha God by, Hec by Dr. Hector Garcia. Right. I don't know if you've heard of it, but I've... Well, when I check it out if you have some time, it's a really interesting listener uh, read. He, he basically talks about, um, about you know, the very notion of relationships and the type of relationships over time, but he more specifically focuses on like the, the, the super high value alpha that runs harems. Yeah, like I, I don't like I'm going to all listen to it or, and I'm going to get uh, the rational mail, which you mentioned to me again. I'm going to actually get the audio and just kind of devour that because I need to get into that again, too. My my zone that I'm playing in is certainly a more contained container, which is, yeah, I, I'm not looking to have two or three partners. Fuck, I can barely manage having one. Like, I, I, I actually want to spend time with my guy friends. I want to spend time with myself. Like, even last night, my two boys were like, hey, they're, they're 19 and, and 17. They're like, hey, do you want to watch a movie? I'm like, yeah, by myself. And they're like, no, why can't we watch them together? I was like, I actually just want to. I can lie in my room by myself with the TV and just stare at it and not have to deal with anybody for no reason other than I just wanted some alone time. 
yeah, I don't, I don't need to have a polyamorous, <laughs> like Mormon relationship with three wives running around my house. So hard pass. I'm good. No, that looks like a nightmare. I've watched a couple yeah. episodes of these guys with these five wives, and it's like, oh, dude, you really have just ruined your life. I've got a, I have a close friend of mine who lives in Eden, Utah, and he owns a former um, poly Mormon home. He's got five kitchens in his home, and there's five wow. distinct areas. I'm like, dude, hard fucking pass. Like, yeah. no, I'm good. Thank you. Massive pass. I got this yeah. question here. Um, I think you know this guy because he commented on oh, wow. the post when you when you put it out. He says. How does Cameron see the influence of red pill awareness for building a business? I guess I would think of it as, as more, you have to speak your truth. You have to speak exactly what you think and what you feel. You have to just be you and you're going to attract people who buy into that. And the more that you water down as an entrepreneur, either your vision or your beliefs or your goals or your focus, the, the less people are going to give a shit, you know, Steve Jobs, I think as much as everyone might talk about one of the things I love about Steve, even though he's a bad as an entrepreneur in some areas, he just didn't give a shit what anybody thought. He's like, I'm going to remember when the iPhone came out 13 and a half years ago, 14 years ago, like, I'm going to release this iPhone. And, and this is what it's going to be like. And we're like, No, but it's missing a keyboard. He's like, I don't give a fuck. It doesn't need a keyboard. And then the first time we heard it, or touched it, we're like, oh my gosh, we're in, we're addicted. And I think that Red Bull, red Pill Awareness might kind of translate into that as well, of just really owning yourself, owning your truth, speaking it, and, and being okay with it. Mm. Who do you see um, out there today that you really admire when it comes to business? Like, the way they run their business, the way they run their life? The way they, oh, wow. I don't think I really look to like, I don't think I sit there and go, wow, I really admire that one person. I think I look to, I think I, I see lots of things in lots of people and businesses that I'm like, oh, I like that. But I wouldn't say I have one that's, everybody, we all have our shit. We all have like our. Okay, so let me rephrase that. So, I mean, you've been around entrepreneurs your entire life. Like, I mean, you told yeah. a story on your TEDx talk about raising children to be entrepreneurs. And again, that's great. You guys really need to watch that. So just go look it up. But um, what, what beliefs have you updated and changed recently, like in the last few years that you didn't hold true prior? To running a business or as a person? Let's talk about you as a person, because not everybody here runs a business. Me as a person. Um, one was the whole happy wife, happy life. Um, and that, that it goes back to the money can't buy happiness. Like, so true like we're on a hamster wheel chasing stuff for no reason whereas i'm looking at really getting off the grid now and living globally and really enjoying my global travels and um so that's one one was just working th that i had to work hard to be successful whereas the reality you don't have to work hard you have to work smart um one that has shifted i think because of technology in the last 20 years like i'm, I'm a little older i went i graduated from university you know 32 years ago when i graduated from university I didn't have a computer. None, none of us had computers when I was in university. We had typewriters. Computers came around a year or two after I finished university. So the fact that you can actually go online and find information and problem solve and network and connect. When I was in school, you had to be the smartest person in the room. Because, because if you weren't the smartest person, it was too hard to connect with the other smart people. You didn't even know who they were. Now you, you no longer have to be the smartest person. You have to know them. So I think now my what I've had to let go of in my belief was that I had to be smart. Now I just have to know the smart people. So now my it's all about networking and connecting and relationships and community. Um, 
is one I've let go of. I let go of the fact that it was okay just to drink every night. I used to come home and drink a couple of glasses of wine or a half a bottle or a bottle of wine, never more than a bottle, but it was like a half bottle to a bottle for years. And now I'm like, that's really not a good thing. That's like, I'm walking away from something. I had to own it myself, right? Like I'm, I'm avoiding something. I'm using it to kill pain or loneliness. And then I'm getting depressed because of it. And I'm tired in the morning, so I don't get exercise. And so now I do like these periods of cleanses where I'll take you know, a month off every year and not drink. Right now I'm doing two and a half weeks of not drinking just to, to force myself into a kind of check myself, put myself in the penalty box for two minutes mm-hmm. uh, and to make sure that I'm in control of it. Yeah, you got to make these vices your bitch every once in a while, right? Yeah. Um, you were talking about becoming a global citizen. What does that mean? Like just, just being like more... Noble. I didn't touch on the car thing too. I've never been a car guy. Yeah, and yeah. I remember... I remember driving with you in your in your car. I think it was a BMW, a pretty fast one years ago, and I and I loved the feeling and the power. And I, I remember looking at you, going, "Guy just looked successful. Like you just looked and felt successful in this car." Was it like a six series or something? Do you remember what you had? Uh, I think that's when I picked you up from the airport in my yeah. M3 convertible. So that was like a 414 horsepower V8, but it, but it sounded really nice. Like it sounded it powerful. Yeah. So so years ago, I went out and bought my first, I was driving a Saab and then I drove another Saab and then I went out and bought a fully loaded P90D Tesla, fucking loaded it with everything, 130,000 US, bought and never even drove, test drove it. I just like went and picked it up. Ordered. It was like, Holy shit, man. I don't know what we've been driving, but they're not cars. Like yeah. that is just ridiculous. So I, I get it now. And every single day I sat down in it, I loved it and felt successful. And I would tell any single guy out there, buy yourself the car that you want to be driving before you buy anybody else anything. Before you buy anything else for your kids, before you buy anything else for your spouse, before you pay anything for your parents, buy yourself the car or lease the car. For the next three years, you are going to feel good like every time I sit in my cars now, I feel good. Mm-hmm. I've got right now in Vancouver, I've got an Audi Q8, like fully decked out SUV because I'm in the mountains. But every time I sit in it, I'm like, I feel good. Like there's mm-hmm. something that that transfers into the way I walk into the coffee shop or the way I show up on my calls. And it's a really weird segue moment, but I get it. Wow. Well, it's interesting that you say that because there's a lot of guys I know that's like, you wouldn't even know that 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 they're loaded. I think there was one interview that Jeff Bezos did where he was driving this shitty old Honda minivan. Yeah. Yeah. And like the reporter's like, okay, you're the richest guy in the world. Why are you driving this car sort of thing? Why aren't you in the back of a Rolls Royce with a, you know, with somebody driving? But there's a lot of guys um, out there that, that are, that are super successful, but they're not car guys. I was actually surprised because when I was a kid, I thought everybody was a car guy because all my friends were car guys. We liked cars a lot. We always did like these big burnouts and we were doing donuts in the wintertime in the parking lots and all that kind of stuff. And then as I got older and I started to, you know, start reading books like, you know, Richard Branson's biography, he never talked about cars once, you know, he talked about doing balloons and racing across the ocean in a powerboat. Um, you know, you read up on Steve Jobs and he, like the nicest car he had was an older Mercedes that he never even plated. Like he basically used this technique to never plate the car. <laughs> yeah, my, mine, is a, mine is a treating myself with something that is going to, to pay off time and time again. So you mentioned the Herman Miller chair. I've got a Herman Miller Aeron chair at my office desk, 50, 60 feet from me. I only fly first class now. But people, people are like, oh, is that an ego thing? No, I actually have met more business deals sitting in first class than I've ever met sitting in economy. I landed the country of, of Qatar because I sat beside the second in command for the country on a flight from Vancouver to Phoenix. I landed the CEO of Sprint. I've landed speaking events. 
So now I'm like, wait a second, I'm gonna pay to put myself in that spot because I'm around successful people. I'm gonna pay to put myself in a nice car because it makes me feel good every single day. I'm gonna pay to sit in, a, in the best chair out there because I feel good eight hours a day when I'm sitting in it. Right now I'm sitting in a $3,000 leather, leather chaise that I do work I on. I don't know if you can see. Are you in the same one, the yeah. restaurant hardware? Yeah, it's fucking amazing. I love this thing. Yeah. And then I and then I travel. When I travel, I stay in nice hotels or I stay in really really baller, you know, Airbnbs because it feels good. Now and then I might cut back a little bit on the fact that yeah, I wear a Lululemon sweatshirt because it doesn't. I don't really give a shit. Well, they're actually pretty comfortable. I guess. <laughs> yeah, they're comfortable. Um, yeah, so talk about you know the importance of putting yourself in the right room and and reinvesting yourself because you talked about becoming part of Joe Polish's Genius Network. I think that was twenty five thousand dollars a year. Yep. You go to Mastermind Talks, you know it's not cheap. Um, a lot of people balk, you know, when I say, hey, you know, if you want to reach out to me for coaching, and they get mad at me because I'm because because I'm fifteen hundred bucks an hour, right? They're like, oh, you know, you're a grifter and you're profiting from people. It's like, no, I focus on this area more on the high end. There's other guys out there that will deal with lower end stuff, but it, it, like. The importance of of surrounding yourself in rooms where these these, I mean, Jason Ga Jason Gaynard said this, and it and it really resonated with me. I don't know if he was the first one to say it, but if he was the, the first person, person that I heard it from. But if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And yeah. most people find themselves in a position where they've done just enough work where they become the smartest person in the room, and they never want to leave that room. Well, and for me, I'm. Um that was my life for a long time because i was the speaker who was being paid to come to speaks of groups of entrepreneurs and i was coaching entrepreneurs so all of a sudden i was the, the thought leader and the expert and it took me a while to break away from that feeling which even built a bit of a chip on my shoulder where i was always trying to like show them or show off and some of that's my little kid insecurity coming out in me to finally now when i started going to all these masterminds like i've been to mastermind talks five times I was in strategic coach for seven years. I've been in war room for two years. I've been in genius network for five or six years. I've gone to the main Ted conference nine times. I'm spent like, we're spending about 50 to a hundred thousand dollars a year on being a parts of these groups. Um, and I know I'm, oh, I've been to baby bathwater three times. So I am now very used to not being the smart, the smartest guy in the room. I'm used to being a smart guy in the room, but, but going, damn, there's a lot of smart people. You know, I sat beside this guy at Ted years ago who was a little dirty, a little disheveled, you know, his shoes were untied. And I sat down with him because I felt sorry for him because I was one of the earliest people into the theater. So we're sitting chatting and Bill Gates comes over to him. He's like, Addison, so wonderful to see you. And they talk for a second and Bill Gates leaves. And then Al Gore comes over, Addison, so wonderful to see you. And then he leaves. And then Demi Moore comes over, Addison, so wonderful to see you. And then she and I talk because she'd seen my Ted talk. But I'm like, Addison, who are you? He's like, oh, I was the founder of VeriSign and I was the founder of RSS and I'm, you know, I've got billions of dollars in cash right now. Um, I remember going, fuck, like I am filled with a room of people that are at a, a, a thousand times more successful than I've ever, not only ever been, but ever dreamed. Like I'm sitting beside Sergey Brin, the founder of Google in a ball pit, right? Mm -hmm. Like I don't even want to ask a question because it's like, it's going to be largely irrelevant to whatever he's thinking. Yeah, I think that's but it's a great, but I'll tell you, it raises my game. It raises my bar. Like you have discussions with people for first, you also realize they're just like you, you know, like I was sitting with, with Chip Wilson, the founder of Lululemon at Ted over coffee. And, and I introduced him to kombucha. He didn't know what kombucha was. I'm like, wow, I'm teaching this, the founder of Lululemon what kombucha was. And now we sit at lunches. When we see each other at conferences, we hang out together mm -hmm. and you realize he's, he's just a guy. 
right? A very uber successful wealthy guy, but he dreams bigger. He communicates well. And I've seen him on stage and I've seen him with, with people and he talks the same. I'm like, I, I'm learning that, that even the way I approach stuff, like I don't have a stage voice. I don't have a coaching voice. I don't have a podcasting voice. I just, I'm just me. That's a learned, that's a learned confidence though, from being in those groups. Love it. Um, I want to respect your time so we can wrap up and keep it under yeah. 90 minutes. Cause I, cause I want to chat with you a little bit offline as well, but where's the best place for people to find you and who should be finding you? Who should be finding me? I am anyone for sure in the entrepreneurial world. Cause I really do focus on that sector. So, you know, my five books are all available on Amazon, audible and iTunes. If they look up my name, they'll find all five books. I would start with probably the miracle morning for entrepreneurs, um, and, and double, double, uh, or the vivid vision book. But, but those would be the three that I would point this audience towards. Um, the COO Alliance, if anybody's running a company of, of you know, 5 million or greater, check out the COO Alliance for sure. And then check out my second in command podcast. We, we have some amazing, amazing guests and learning on that. Cool. All right. So um, I'm going to grab some of the links once this broadcast renders and put it in the top comment just so you guys can click them easier. But you can also just find Cameron by searching his name. It, it, it always pops up at the top whenever you look for it. All right, brother. Thanks for uh, sharing that. You know, we touched on a lot of uh, really interesting and fun stuff in some areas I didn't even think we'd get to, but um, that was awesome. Yeah, same. I, well, I, I've never had a filter, which you know about me, so that was great. It's been really great catching up, and I've been really, really proud of your success over the years, and I'm glad that, uh, and I hate the word pivot, I'm glad you found a new, better calling than the business you used to be in. Like our business, no one gives a shit about our business. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you're doing something that is, is a passion is and making a difference, I think is really huge. Yeah, it took a while to find it. But when I but when I like had that frying pan to the forehead moment, I was like, OK, this is this is what I need to be doing. Like, I need to spend more time on this. I, by the way, the last last quick kind of un, unasked for coaching moment. I don't think you're charging enough. I, I really think that I saw kind of your group. Honest to God, I think you should be three times at least right now, three times on all of your levels. Um, for what you're offering. I think you have a bigger offering and a bigger opportunity and a bigger audience. I think you're massively underselling yourself. And I had to get told that years ago as well, but I don't think you're charging enough. Thanks. Um, all right, guys. So those of you that have been crying about my high rates. <laughs> yeah, get in get in now. because They're going up because get in now. <laughs> yeah. So if you guys, here, I'm going to do like a shameless shout out. So if you guys want to get in, so that's the link to get in my community. Prices are definitely going to go up as per Mr. Cameron Harold. You can, always, right. you can always have like a bronze level that's super cheap to get into, but your silver and gold or whatever those upper twos are three X less than they should be. Thanks. Appreciate that. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Um, All right, buddy.